LinkedIn presents. I'm Rufus Griscom, and this is The Next Big Idea. Today, a roadmap for finding purpose, meaning, and success. If you do something amazing, truly amazing, something that changes people's lives for the better, let's say you create a new product, write an astonishingly beautiful novel, sing a song that just blows people away, a song that people can't stop singing, do you think that would give you a sense of enduring happiness? Let's say you were Charles Darwin or Johann Sebastian Bach or Aretha Franklin or Nelson Mandela. Would your accomplishments and the enduring admiration of others be like a sun in which you could bask for the balance of your days? On some level, for many years, decades even, I have believed this to be true. If what I do is distinctive enough, beautiful enough, worthy enough, if it lifts other people up, then I'll be able to put up my feet, hang out with my buddies, and bask in the afterglow of that accomplishment. Have you ever thought this? If you're a striver, you probably have. Here is the bad news for strivers everywhere. It turns out people who achieve great success are often among the least happy at the end of their lives. You can't bank it, it turns out. The sense of satisfaction we get from accomplishments is like water vapor on a hot day. I've been convinced of this thanks to a new book by Arthur C. Brooks, From Strength to Strength, Finding Success, Happiness, and Deep Purpose in the Second Half of Life. Before writing this book, Arthur tested success as a strategy for happiness. He became one of the world's top French horn players. He ran a leading think tank for a decade, and he was not happy. So he decided to leave the high-powered success track, climb off the hedonic treadmill, and slow down. What happened? He ended up with a faculty appointment at Harvard, a column in The Atlantic, and a number one New York Times bestseller. He went from strength to strength. Side note here, while Arthur's book is about the second half of life, this conversation is worth listening to at any stage in life. Arthur's insights into how your intelligence works, his thoughts on the relationship between your age and what kind of career you should pursue, his critique of our success-obsessed culture, it's super relevant whether you're 18 or 80. This book changed my perspective on success and happiness. This conversation might change yours. Why does success beget dissatisfaction? And more importantly, what can we do to live more satisfying lives? Let's ask Arthur. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Arthur C. Brooks, welcome to the Next Big Idea podcast. Thank you, Rufus. Really lovely to be with you and congratulations on the success oh, of the thank show. Thank you, thank you. Well, Arthur, I, I've noticed talking with friends who write books that a lot of writers struggle with the question of how to open the book. 
Um, and I get the sense that you did not have that problem. You, you had an experience that profoundly impacted your life, maybe even altered the, the course of your life. And it set you on a journey that resulted in this book. Uh, do you want to share that experience? Yeah. Well, to begin with, I have written a lot of books where I struggled to open them, to be sure. And I find that it's a lot easier to write a book that you're not intending to write but rather just to do some research for your own edification. And that's what this was all about. I had no intention to write this up into a, into a book. On the contrary, I was just making my way through my ordinary life. I was you know, running a company. I was, um, in my, I was just turning 50, as a matter of fact. And, and I was having kind of an existential crisis insofar in as I, I didn't know what my end game was. I mean, things were going plenty well by worldly standards. But it was clear that there was no cadence to it. There was no, <laughs> I was going to do my work and then do my work again and do my work again. And then, then at some point stop. And then what? And it just, I, I had no clarity at all about what I was trying to get to. And around that time I was doing what I always did, which was travel around the country and give speeches and raise money. I was running a big nonprofit at the time. And I overheard a conversation behind me on an airplane, a cross country flight of I could tell an old man talking to his wife as an elderly couple, and I assumed it was his wife because they were having a very intimate conversation. And I wasn't trying to eavesdrop, but but you've got to understand is as a social as a behavioral social scientist, my lab is the overheard conversation, Rufus. So if you're confessing to your best friend that your heart has just been broken and you're behind me in a Starbucks, keep your voice down because you know it might actually be my next book. And I heard this guy telling his wife that he might as well be dead. He's clearly this elderly oh gentleman. I'm like, whoa, man. And, and no. his wife is trying to console him and, and he's going on and on. And, and she's saying, it's not true. Nobody remembers you. And I was figuring that this guy is, you know, not like the audience to the show. This is not somebody who's, you know, in the serious business of life has mm -hmm. made the most out of their circumstances and done really well. On the contrary, it's probably somebody who's really disappointed at his opportunities and what he didn't do. And now his life is almost over. And, and that seemed plausible until... At the end of the flight, when the lights turned on and we all stood up and turned around, I got a look at him and he was one of the most famous men in the world. This is somebody who wow. is world famous and a hero for what he did in yeah. the 60s and 70s. And I thought to myself, yeah, um, you know, the world gives you a formula for happiness and, yeah. and it is basically bust your pick, play by the rules, work really hard, get a little bit of good luck, work, work, bank it, mm -hmm. die happy. And it is not right. And as I was at that point in my life, basically trying to work as hard as possible and then hope for the best and have the world roll around at my feet and tell me what the end game was, I realized that that just wasn't going to happen. Mm. So I yeah. turned my whole social science toolkit. I'm a, I'm a scientist in the business of happiness. I was mm -hmm. going to look at all the data and do the experiments and look at the best literature and brain science on what the right path was. What do really successful people do who wind up happy and that's what this book is about. It's supposed to crack the code for me. And then, and only later did I decide to publish it as a book after I did the research to my own satisfaction. These moments are so interesting to me. These moments when you get, you know, you get the world gives you these sort of puzzle pieces and most of them fit into your worldview. Yeah. And then sometimes you get a puzzle piece that just doesn't fit, right? And I think we all kind of collect these puzzle pieces that don't quite fit and try to make sense of them. And I remember when you and I were, we're younger, you know, Kurt Cobain committing suicide in the mid nineties. And it was yeah. for me, this, this misshapen puzzle piece. I was sort of, I thought like, well, the ingredients of happiness must be different from what I think, or maybe there are details of his story that I don't understand. Then more recently we had this case of Anthony Bourdain, 
right. um, who was such a sort of beloved figure. And I think confounding for so many people. And I think these moments are fascinating. And it was not until I read this opening section of your book that I realized that I have protected in my mind this idea that if you do something that's adequately extraordinary or, or enough extraordinary things that change the world for the better or impact people's lives, that you will just sort of bask in the afterglow of that accomplishment. Yeah. I'd seen indications that maybe that wasn't true. And so in reading that opening section, I thought, you know what? I completely convinced this is not true, right? We, we don't, you can't, you can't bank it. Well, not only can you not bank it, it's not only not true, it's the contrary of the truth, which yeah, is this yeah. mind-bending thing. I mean, for really successful people who are listening to us and kind of feeling insecure and unhappy, and they think they're the only one, and if they said, I'm really unhappy, it would be like the world's smallest violin. Nobody, you know, totally. you, you put on social media, I remember when Lady Gaga, she tweeted, fame is prison which it manifestly is. And she was just roundly criticized. She was trashed. It's like, you privileged person. And, and the data really support this. It's very interesting. You find that that average happiness over the adult lifespan, it, it, it kind of, it, it falls for the average person very gradually from early 20s until early 50s. So, you know, yeah, but then there's yeah. good news for you, Rufus, because it turns around and it increases a lot until about age 70. And at age 70, the population breaks up into two groups. One group that keeps getting happier all the way to the end, and the other half that starts getting unhappier all the way to the end. And I've studied who's in the lower group, and it's not ordinary people. It's mm -hmm. successful people. I mean, look, there are a lot of things that can lead to that. You know, you can have you know, mental illness problems or substance abuse problems, or you can have physical abuse in your home. But I'm talking about people that, you know, controlling for these things. It's the successful people early in life who tend to be unhappier later in life. And we actually understand why when we think about it, it makes sense. The first is that they're no longer living up to their own expectations. One of the things that highly successful people have in common is that they're brutal slave drivers of themselves. And generally speaking, since they were kids, they've objectified themselves as success machines. And, you know, if you say, I'm not going to be happy unless I'm number one, well, most people aren't number one, even successful people, and they're disappointed by that. That's number one. The second reason is that if you have a big party in your life, you're going to know when it's over. If you don't do anything with your life, you're not going to know when it's over. But if you go mm -hmm. from success mm -hmm. to success, and finally that success wanes, it has to wane, it's going to be incredibly bitter. That's the reason that if you're a very successful person, you're most likely to end up getting unhappier at the end of your life, which means you need special therapy. You need special techniques. And that's what this book is so that you can mm. hack the matrix and get out of that problem. And where were you, Arthur? So in this moment, you're, you know, you're getting off the airplane and you have this history, of course, of being a an, an overachiever from your early career as a musician to running a major the American Enterprise Institute, a large conservative think tank in your in your forties. So your classic overachiever. Where was your head when you overheard this conversation? Were you were you happy? How did you feel about your your life? I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy at all. Um, you know, I had. You know, who was it who said, I can't remember, who said, woe be unto you if you get your heart's desire. You know, if you, mm -hmm. if you check off all these things on your bucket list, because implicitly on your bucket list is I'm going to be happy if I do all of these things. Nobody says, yeah, here's the things on my bucket list. And if I do all these things, I'm going to be dissatisfied and miserable. That's not what you think. 
And, you know, I had done everything on my bucket list and I feel very lucky to be in a position to have been able to do that. And I found that it wasn't giving me anything. I mean, it was, it was remunerative. I mean, the money was pretty good, but you know, I was, my relationship with my family was just kind of okay. I, you know, I've been working 80 hours a week for year after year after year for these kind of murky professional goals. I was pretty lonely as a CEO. Um, I didn't have the kind of close friendships that I needed to have. And I had marginalized things with my family that I shouldn't have done. I didn't have the love in my life that I wanted. And the result of it was I wasn't happy and I knew it was going to end and I didn't know what the end game was. That's why I was in search. I was in this good moment, quite frankly, in retrospect, because the fact that I recognized that I was not satisfied made me open to question a lot of these presumptions that I'd always made in the, in the, in the tyranny of the bucket list. That, that resonates. And, and, and I think initially we tend to feel like when we feel, gosh, this, I, I'm not totally satisfied. I'm not totally happy. We think maybe the problem is one of quantity of success. Well, the problem isn't that success doesn't make me happy. The, pro- the problem is I haven't been successful enough. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> sort of keep, keep over-indexing on the success of the success I, before realizing it's a problem of not of quantity, but of type of behavior of, of like how we're, how we're interacting with the world. And, and for those who like to get right to the meat of it, happiness equals love, full stop, right? Absolutely. Uh, but, but anybody can do love. You know, anybody yeah. can, you know, have kids and, you know, but not everybody can make a billion dollars as an entrepreneur. And so you think True. that doing the extraordinary thing, Mother Nature says, do the extraordinary thing and you'll be even happier. I mean, that's what the world tells you. But the you know, the media establishment and, you know, marketing, et cetera. That's just a, that's a large extension to the limbic system of your brain. The key thing that everybody needs to understand is that mother nature does not care if you're happy. Mother nature yes. wants to make you fit in the reproduction game. And the way that you do that is by, by being successful in money and power and pleasure and the admiration of other people. Because in the Pleistocene, our ancestors who were successful in worldly terms, they had more animal skins and more flints and, you know, a big stock of buffalo jerky in the cave. And the result was they were going to get more mates. Now, today, we don't want to have 75 children. You know, we want to have a happy life. And if you want to be happy, you need to go against a lot of your animal nature and stand up for yourself. I mean, you're responsible for your own happiness. And a lot of the time that means saying, you know, these inclinations that I have more successful, more, more. You know, why do I want 10 watches? Well, the reason for that is that you can, if you're a caveman and you are consuming and own more than you need, you're representing the fact that you can you can support somebody and a lot of offspring. It's just evidence. And, and all you're doing is peacocking in the same way. You just don't recognize it, but you want it, want it for some reason. So that, that, those recognitions actually have a lot. They're rooted in a great deal, a great body of neuroscientific uh, literature that shows, for example, that we have a, there's a process called homeostasis in which our satisfaction drives us to get more stuff, but we can't maintain the joy from getting these things more than a minute or a day or a week. And then we're running, 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 running again. That's why we call it the hedonic treadmill, the yep. treadmill of running and running and running. And outsized people on this, super successful people, they have dopamine in their brains that looks just like a methamphetamine addict's brain, mm-hmm. but for mm-hmm. these successes. And so they're running at terrifying speed on their hedonic treadmill. This is not just I got to get to the weekend when I can relax. It's I got to get to the next deal. I got to make the next hundred million dollars. I got to get the next promotion. And man, that is a racket that you'll never find it. 
but it is it is an adrenaline rush. It is exhilarating, and you you were living it with your eighty hours a week. Do do you miss that feeling at all? Well, yeah. So I retired as a result of this research, well before I published the book. And I came to dedicate myself to, you know, what I knew was I was best at. And this is the thrust of the argument is what are you best at? And the answer is serving others through instruction. That's what people are better at. That's the structure of their brains lend them to that. And so real success in life is serving other people and doing so by teaching, by mentoring, by sharing ideas. And so I, I retired as a CEO and I became a professor and I published this book. And then ironically, it threw me right back on the treadmill because the book did really well. And so now I'm, you know, doing 175 talks a year about the book and doing a lot of doing important shows like, you know, the next big idea. But I haven't forgotten the truth of this. I have not. I, I have the knowledge of this. And so it doesn't have the same tyranny. It doesn't have the same claim over me. You know, it's like, oh, if only it can be number one on the New York Times bestseller list. I'm not fooling myself. You know, it's interesting. It's, um, you know, if you had told me five years ago, 10 years ago, you could, you're going to write a book that's going to be the number one New York Times bestseller. I would say, well, finally, I'll be happy. And I knew full well that no matter how well this did, that it was not going to bring happiness. And in point of fact, it didn't. And I wasn't expecting it. And so life is better. But as you point out, there's a deep irony to this exercise of deciding that you need to be less ambitious and want less. And in the process of espousing a less ambitious path, you write a book that's number one on the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list. And of course, that irony is clearly not lost on you. Oh, yeah. Oh, that irony is not lost on me, nor is it lost on my wife, Rufus. I mean, she's like, you know, there have been times during book tour when I was going from place to place to place. And she's like, did you read your book? <laughs> no, and, it, and it's a fair point. And that's one of the reasons yeah. that these things yeah. can't and shouldn't last forever. And you have to look for your consolation in the ordinary things in life, which I'm better at as a result of this of this work. But for sure, you know, I'm not made of stone and it is kind of exciting, but at least I know the truth and knowledge is power. I'm sort of metacognitive yes. about it at least. I'm not, right. you know, that's right. Expecting what that's I can't right. get from it. That's right. Well, maybe we should share with listeners the sort of the, the core thesis of, of, you know, from strength to strength. There are two kinds of intelligence, right? There are two, two growth curves. Yeah. One of the reasons that people find themselves so afraid and frustrated as they move through life, especially people who are really successful, is not just because of this hedonic treadmill. It's also because inevitably they go into decline. And this is a very funny thing. I mean, there's been a lot of literature that shows that that most early geniuses and almost everything that takes, you know, the 10,000 hours, especially in areas that use a lot of knowledge, but, but even beyond that as well, most of these things, they peak in terms of your productive capacity and your creativity and your innovativeness and your efficiency about age 39. There's kind of a creepy inevitability about age 39. So you find that classical musicians on average peak at 39, financial professionals, surgeons, lawyers, but even air traffic controllers and, and engineers around age 39. And then they go into decline. And that decline feels horrible because, you know, and, and it's funny because most of the time these high performers, dear listeners, you know who you are, you're the only ones who know. Everybody else thinks that you're still sort of the king of the mambo, but you know that things are not getting easier and you're not learning and not getting better. All of happiness in human life is progress. You notice that when somebody's on a weight loss program and they're 
they're doing really well and they're very positive and a couple of pounds are coming off the scale every week and they really, really like it. The worst thing that ever happens to them is they hit their goal. And the reason is because that there's no more progress and your reward for losing all that weight is never getting to eat what you like ever again for the rest of your life, <laughs> which is not that great. And that's the reason that basically all diets fail. And the same thing is true in our lives. And so you'll find these weird things in highly skilled professions. You know, your dentist who's a hotshot dentist around age 43 just suddenly decides to take off Fridays in golf. And like, what the heck, man? I thought you loved being a dentist. Isn't that a lot more fun than golfing? He's like, yeah, it used to be. I don't know why. I'm just kind of burned out. Burnout in your 40s is largely because of this decline. Now, psychologists have studied this and there's, particularly there was a, a great British psychologist in the 1960s and 70s named Raymond Cattell, who detected a certain kind of intelligence called fluid intelligence that in mm -hmm. point of fact is what makes you good at what you do. It peaks around late 30s, early 40s and goes into decline. He also detected, however, a second intelligence curve that comes in behind it that uses different skills, which is called crystallized intelligence. This is intelligence that's not just you know, you're a, you're a cowboy, you're a ninja, you're the best at what you do. You can solve problems faster than others. Innovative capacity, working memory, all the cool stuff. No, this is one that doesn't rely on those skills. It's your ability to teach others, to synthesize ideas, to explain hard ideas, to coach other people, to recognize patterns. In other words, it's wisdom. And if you can jump to a career or a job or a way of doing your job that favors that, you'll get better and better through your 50s and 60s and 70s and the big bonus is you'll be doing something that serves other people more where yeah. you'll have more friendship yeah. and love in your life. And that that's cracking the code. Yeah. The, the data point that really resonated for me was, was that older college professors, I guess, in one study tend to have the highest ratings, right? Older, yeah. older equals higher ratings. They're better teachers, yeah. um, but they have lower research productivity. Absolutely. Uh, and although one thing I wonder about is whether this is all explained by an erosion of fluid intelligence versus a little bit of a sense of, of ennui, of like, we're no longer trying to prove ourselves. I mean, the dentist who's taking Fridays off, like one explanation is that he's just not, no longer at the top of his game. The other is it's lost its novelty. Yeah. Well, the reason it loses its novelty, anything loses its novelty is because you're not getting better. So something will keep its novelty pretty much ad infinitum, as long as you're getting better at it. That's what we're wired to do. And, and it'll just be kind of the same old, same old, if you're, you know, drilling teeth just as well as you did before, and you're not really learning very much, and you're not getting new insights. And, you know, you're not going to notice it as your dentist client. He's not going to drill the wrong tooth. He's still a highly skilled professional, and you can't tell the difference between him and the next five best dentists. But he's going to notice the difference. And that you know, that is really hard on people who've dedicated themselves to excellence. Excellence requires yeah, yeah. progress in excellence. And when that stops, then it's just like, oh man, then it becomes drudgery. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, 
I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. One example you have, Arthur, in the book is you you talk about the logic of different kinds of career transitions. And one is a transition from from entrepreneur to venture capitalist. Right. Now, I'll admit I have a dog in this hunt as a a 54-year-old entrepreneur. I'm building company number four. Although I would say I think the way I'm building company number four is very different from the way I built companies number one and two. But I was fascinated. We had Seth Stevens Davidowitz, a former Google data scientist, Harvard data scientist, on the show recently. And he he had shared a study that showed that the probability of entrepreneurial success increases until the age of 60, hmm. at which point it starts to decline. But maybe the the explanation there would be more that that it is possible to lead companies and grow companies in ways that are much more empowering of, of uh, that are more of a teaching empowerment kind of approach, which is how I've noticed my own leadership style. Oh, yeah, evolved. for sure. Yeah. This is what you find um, is that, for example, successful entrepreneurs who are a little bit older, generally speaking, are getting into industries that are already mature. So if you want to be a mm, private equity entrepreneur, you can't do that when you're 20. You're not going to know enough. I mean, you're just not going to know enough. You have to be in the business. You got to work in the business. You got to have a huge Rolodex in the business. So, really young entrepreneurs are doing things that haven't been done before at all. Furthermore, s- successful entrepreneurs who are older, they really are they're entrepreneurs because they're founding companies. But what they're really good at is finding the absolute best talent to do these innovations that need to be done. I- I- am I right that that's how you're doing your fourth company? Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm empowering the team to take a much more active role in leadership decisions and so on. I have a, I have a different philosophy that, that I think is a more humble, more humble philosophy, frankly. That's crystallized intelligence. I mean, that you're using it to the max and that's really, really good. And another way of doing that is by identifying talent and getting behind it with respect to money, which is what venture capitalists are really, really good at doing. You don't want to get behind a venture capitalist who's 25. You want a venture capitalist who's 55 or 65 because they've, you know, they've grown up in the school of hard knocks. You know, it's funny, you know, I, you know, Chip Conley, my old buddy, Chip Conley, he, yeah, um, yeah. you know, he, he left, you know, he was an incredible entrepreneur in hospitality for many years and he left his company, went to Airbnb and they called him their elder statesman or their, their, you know, their modern elder. And he kind of bummed him out because, you know, in California in particular, if you're not, if you're not young, you're not, you're nothing. And then he realized that the reason was because he knew every mistake that the young people were about to make. Mm, And and that's how he added to the entrepreneurial endeavor was by saying, do this, don't that, don't do that, trust me, here's why. Or just trust my gut on this one because, man, you're not going to like it. If you you go to door number two, there's like something behind it you're not going to like. I've seen that before. And that's really, really important, but that's how crystallized intelligence works. When you think about sort of the, the the strategy that we use to make decisions about our career path, that obviously you've just made a personal decision that was pretty dramatic in terms of your own your own career path. One of the most memorable stories you tell is the story of Charles Darwin versus Johann Sebastian Bach, yeah, and, and the decisions they made. I, I think that might be worth sharing because it's just such a such an incredible contrast. When you think about incredibly successful people, nobody ever asks, did they die happy? 
you only ever ask in their biographies what were the amazing things that they did. And so I went back and looked. You know, Charles Darwin is on the everybody's list of the top five most influential natural scientists of all time, obviously. I mean, this is the guy who inflected our thinking on nearly everything in the natural sciences. And what you find is that he, you know, he did his best work on his fluid intelligence curve, just like everybody in his 20s. You know, he did his work as the naturalist aboard the Beagle, that sailing ship around the world where he was collecting samples of plants and animals and sending them back. Five years on the road, he came back at age 27, had observed just incredible evidence of animals and plants that look suspiciously halfway between living animals and plants and fossils. And from that, he came up with kind of the nuclear bomb of natural science, which of course was his theory of evolution. And and he developed that when he came back at age 27 and almost overnight became the most prominent and famous natural scientist in all of Europe. He was the, he was really the king. And he did that for the next 25 years until his progress came to a screeching halt because he could no longer make the progress that he needed to stay abreast of his own field. Now, specifically, it was because he couldn't understand the math and stats to follow the research that was taking him to the next level that he needed, which was called genetics. That was being developed by a Czech monk named Gregor Mendel in German with sophisticated math that that Darwin simply didn't have and couldn't learn because he was not on his fluid intelligence curve anymore. He was on his crystallized intelligence curve. And he spent the last 25 years of his life kind of bummed out. You know, he wrote 11 more books, but they were kind of derivative. And, you know, and he died confessing to a friend that nothing gave him any satisfaction. He could have been the man behind me on the plane. But then you look at others who cracked the code. And and the way that they did it was by walking from their fluid to their crystallized intelligence curve. Now, a lot of people don't want to do it because being the innovator is sexier than being the teacher. You know, when you were the cowboy entrepreneur, it was probably sexier than when you're the teacher entrepreneur, because what one of the things that you really have to do is to lift these other people up as the heroes. And some people can't do that. Bach could do that. You know, he was overtaken mm-hmm. by events by his own son, who Amazing. developed yeah. a new style of music that rendered Johann Sebastian Bach's high Baroque music totally obsolete. And, you know, for many years, for a hundred years after Bach's death, the most famous Bach was his son, Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach. You know, Mozart wrote in his memoirs, Bach is the father and we are the children. And people for years in the modern times thought that he was talking about Johann Sebastian Bach. He wasn't. He was talking about the son. Um, You know, Beethoven collected the manuscripts of the son, didn't know anything about the father. It was only a hundred years after Johann Sebastian Bach died that he was rediscovered and, and, and was converted in the public imagination to what we know him today as, as the greatest composer ever lived. So he was left behind when he was 50 years old. And over the last 15 years of his life, instead of being bitter and angry and disappointed, he converted himself to really the, the most revered composition and choral and organ teacher of his time. You know, he was teaching people how to write church music. He was teaching choruses how to sing beautiful music in service of God and the refreshment of the soul. And he, he also, by the way, had 20 kids, which is, you know, pretty productive. And he died surrounded by his students and his children and his grandchildren. And he wasn't as famous or rich as he had been in the past at the heyday of his compositional career. But that man died happy because that man died with love. And he did it by converting his own life to get on the right curve of his excellence, which was his service curve, his wisdom curve, mm. his crystallized intelligence curve. So we have this eroding fluid intelligence. I'm, I'm, I'm still in, in denial about this. I, I don't know that I've noticed it, but I think it may be because I was a bit forgetful as a child. So, I, you know. <laughs> And so what can we do 
we can move into careers or roles within our careers that play to the strength of this growing, crystallized intelligence. And as you say, in doing so, silver lining, we're much better positioned to connect with other people, really invest in community. And and this, to me, was something that, that I've felt for a decade now. You have this wonderful metaphor of the Aspen Grove that we're not, you know, that in our younger decades, we often think of ourselves as, you know, individuals trying to be extraordinary, trying to achieve. And you realize as you get older that we're all fundamentally connected. And as I felt increasingly, all success on some level is group success, you know, because our, our, our roots are connected. Yeah. And, you know, you tend to think that more as you get older. And the people who are really unhappy and bitter and disappointed as they get older are never able to come to that conclusion that to see that the you, your value, your worth, the impact that you have is not the sum of your individual achievements, but the sum of the achievements together of people that you value, the sum of the love and relationships in your life. And that's an entirely different value proposition, to be sure. People who can make it, which you obviously did, that's phenomenal. But a lot of people can't, you know, they're held back by their egos, they're held back by their self-concept or, or fear or, uh, or just the discomfort that comes from actually stepping across from one curve to another. I mean, I remember this when I, I saw it clearly, I had the data and man, I eat my own cooking. I'm a social scientist. I mean, I suffered mm-hmm. through a PhD to get the training to think that I was going to be able to, to illuminate some things that were true. And so when I saw you got to step across Man, it was hard. There's this whole literature on what's called liminality, the time between yes. these curves. Yeah. Or I, I, you know, I, I talk about it as the time between the tides when it looks like mm-hmm. nothing is going on, but that's when the fish are really, really biting. And you got to step into it. And so when I first left my job, you know, I, you go from as a CEO and I was running AEI, which is this you know big think tank in Washington, D.C. I felt pretty important. You know, you go from the old joke is you go from who's who to who's he in like six months. I would go <laughs> yeah. back and all the young people were like, yeah. who's that guy? And I was like, do you realize I built this place? Which was not true. But you get the point that <laughs> yeah. it, it kind of bummed yeah. me out. And I still hadn't yeah. gotten, you know, this book wasn't coming along. And, you know, I didn't, it kind of felt like I'd left everything behind. But you've got to get into that gap. You actually have to, do you have to jump between these curves? I asked this earlier, but. You might have dodged it a little bit. Do you miss running the think tank or, or you feel like you've fully evolved? You know, I did. I absolutely did at the beginning when I was be- between the tides, when I was walking between the curves and I was in that liminal space. Yeah, for sure. There was a time when, you know, it was like the beginning of COVID and and I didn't I didn't know who I was. It was weird. You know, I found that my my I couldn't sign my name right. It was the weirdest thing, you know. Like I couldn't sign the back of a check and make it look like my signature is like, so who the heck is this guy? It was so it's weird. Amazing. It turns out that's actually quite common. It wasn't that I was having a, you know, some wow. sort of a mental breakdown, but that inability to recognize yourself was intensely uncomfortable. And, you know, there was about a year where I felt like I'd made a mistake. I thought, well, yeah, maybe this isn't right. And at least I had this thing, right, where I felt good about myself. It was the fruit of my labor. And then and then little by little by little, I started to, you know, climb the new curve. And, you know, mm-hmm. I had my students yeah. and I had my writing and I had, you know, an audience that was learning from what I was doing. I mean, back in the day when I used to, you know, do my, my research, it was so mathematically complex that I was writing papers that I can't read today. But now my research, I'm a, what we call a professor of practice here at Harvard. And my job is to write 
for a very large audience and to harvest the academic research of other people and bring it to, to you know, a mass public. And so my, my writing is for, you know, I have an average audience of half a million people a week in the Atlantic. And if I were doing really esoteric work that were highly mathematically innovative, there's nobody who's going to be reading that thing. I have to write for human beings that can understand what I'm writing, which favors crystallized intelligence all day long. Well, if we're looking for silver linings, which we always are in life, the erosion of our fluid intelligence is an opportunity for humility, yeah. right? <laughs> and, yeah. And some of us have to look look for opportunities for humility. I, I joke that we, we got a Boston Whaler a few years ago, and some of my friends and I have tried to learn to, you know, boat a little bit. And trying to dock in front of, you know, 50 people sipping cocktails while there's some currents and some winds it's just an incredible exercise in humility. Yeah. <laughs> the boat's spinning around and you're just like, and you're, <laughs> you know, you're 50 years old and you just look like a complete dingbat. Um, but we have to, but I've had the sense that like, we need to reach, we need to find, it's like, okay, this is an opportunity. This is humility. But increasingly, we don't have to look too far for the opportunities for humility because of this, of this kind, you know, you know, because, yeah. because it, it's forced upon us. Like it, yeah. for, for some, it takes longer than for others, but we will all experience humility. And when we do, hopefully we will see that this is beautiful. Well, you have two choices. You can experience humility or you can experience humiliation, you know, and, and, you know, the truth is humility is better. You know, it's funny because, you know, a lot of people that we see, they, they just, Everybody's got a kind of a, everybody has a death fear. I talk about this a lot in my work is the death fear that people have. And, and, you know, most people are not literally afraid of death, but the thing that defines you that you're losing, mm, that freaks yeah. you out, that's your death fear. So, you know, for a lot of people, it's their looks. That's their mm -hmm. death fear. For some people, yeah. it's relevance. For some people, it's the admiration of other people. For some people, it's professional standing. For some people, it's being forgotten. For me, quite frankly, you know, my big death fear is, you know, I have a lot of, you know, I have tremendous amount of early onset dementia in my family. My mother was suffering from early onset dementia when she was in her mid fifties. So younger than mm -hmm. me oh, gosh. right wow. now. And, you know, let me tell you, man, my brain is my whole deal. You know, it's like, yeah, it's not yeah. like I'm, <laughs> I got something else going for me. So that's super, super, super freaks me out. And so the fact is we all can get in touch with what our fear is, what our decline is, what our worst nightmare is about it and expose ourselves to it and to explore that. I have a thing with my students, you know, my students are the MBA students at Harvard Business School. And, you know, they're, these, these kids are going to be the, the masters of the universe. And I find that their big fear is their fear of failure because they're early onset success addicts. I mean, they've got, you know, have got the cocaine monkey brain of, you know, the people who've never failed and never can. And a lot of them are super freaked out. I mean, they, look, these, they're so talented, so smart, so creative, and so nice, quite frankly, but they're afraid of failure, a lot of them. And so I do an exercise with them where I, I'm, you know, I do the Marinasati Theravada Buddhist death meditation, and I've adapted it for them imagining their own stages of failure, such that they can they can face these things and get better at it, and not have to put these things off until inevitably, when there's some decline in their life, and it becomes something that whacks them in the face, and they can't deal with it. You know, I've I've always thought it was strange when I was younger to hear older people talking about their various physical ailments. But now I find when I get together with friends, I just love to talk about it. It's like, it's like, yeah, what's the, yeah. you know, what's the latest? My chest hair is turning gray. What's up with that? Like, that's, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, at the risk of oversharing. But the, yeah. um, uh, <laughs> and you say, you say you have a chapter called Make Weakness Your Strength. You say yeah. to share your weakness without caring what others think 
is a kind of superpower. Yeah. And I would say it's not only a superpower, but it's also a gift to the other person to some degree, right? You're yeah. saying, you know, yeah. I, I, I'm imperfect and, and I welcome your imperfections. Yeah, well, that's the thing. And, you know, there are certain people who you're, you're afraid that they'll respect you less or whatever, but those are exactly the people whose respect you should not be seeking. Um, in a, in a you know a, a world where you're going to be happy and you're going to have proper relationships and so you know it's interesting that people are generally not honest with themselves and so the result is they try to hide things from other people. Now the people who are best at this at, at not being afraid of their own weaknesses and not even being afraid of sharing their weaknesses these are generally people who've survived terrible things mm -hmm. and have had a lot of post traumatic growth so they've survived abuse they've survived you know, an illness that could have killed them, a bad accident, the loss of somebody that they love. And post-traumatic growth is way more common than post-traumatic stress. Um, I mean, you could actually can co-occur, but post-traumatic growth happens in the majority of cases who've had real trauma. And one of the, the superpowers that you get, I mean, there's a bunch, you know, your, your relationships are deepened, your spiritual path becomes clearer, your priorities get into order. But another superpower of people with post-traumatic growth is they don't care anymore. Not just what other people think, but they're not worried about other people thinking less of them. So you can love other people and not care if they think less of you. And that's really what we should be going for. And the way to do that, even if, you know, I'm, my advice is not, you know, survive cancer. My advice is start getting in touch with your own weaknesses. Start making jokes about it. Start speaking openly about it. You know, if you're really bummed out about the fact that you're bald like me, it's okay. Make a joke about it, about, man, Rufus, you got that beautiful head of hair. If I look like you, I could be president of the United States. It's all good, you know? <laughs> it's all good. Absolutely. You know, one thing I wonder about if we talk about this path towards humility is if it's easier to be humble when you've been successful in, in, in the first act. And I, I, like a, a cynic might say, well, there's kind of a a predictable cycle here. We have high-performing overachievers who are kind of selfish in phase one. They exploit their peak of fluid intelligence to realize like outsized career success. And then they start to lose their edge and, and all of a sudden they embrace humility, which reminds me a little bit of like when I was, a, I had a younger brother and I was larger and stronger. And of course, among male siblings, there was a, a might makes right philosophy in the household. Um, <laughs> but suddenly he was he was just as big and strong as I was. And I suddenly said, you know, physical force is no way to resolve problems. I became a pacifist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really <laughs> he was a philosopher king at that point, right? Totally, yeah. totally. Philosopher king. And he was very confused. He was like, finally, this is my moment. And now you're a pacifist. <laughs> but, but can you see that argument that like, okay, well, yeah, th th this is a it's a savvy shift to go from, you know, to, it's convenient to, to, to embrace humility at, at this point in your Yeah, in for sure. Point. Well, people become chastened all the time. Um, failure and loss, they chasten you. And that's a really, really good thing. You know, we should welcome, you know, people who, who are not trying to hold on to their ego and not trying to hold on to their, their, their fluid intelligence curve when it's long past, but who will actually accept the chastening so that they can have deeper relationships with other people. We should welcome humility no matter how it comes. Now, yes. I wish I were Mother Teresa, who was, you know, as humble as they could be from the very beginning, but, yeah. you know, I'm not. I'm not that good. Um, I've actually yeah. had to have setbacks. You know, I had an early career yeah. that bombed out, and, yes. and, you know, that boy, oh boy, was that a, you know, that was an experience that had a big impact on me, and then, and then later, you know, feeling myself actually starting to lose some of the skills that made me 
pretty good at doing what I was doing. And that chastened me as well. And I think it made me into a better person and a more humble person. At least I'm, I'm hoping it does. Um, <laughs> because I know perfectly that the wave I'm riding right now, man, this is not a very long wave. It's not going to last very long either. And I'm going to need my relationships the whole time because that's what mm. I'm going to be like. That's what's left on the beach when the tide goes out. Yeah. And that actually may have been a gift. So for listeners, you you were a top professional French horn player with aspirations to be the best French horn player in the world. And you had a kind of decline of your capabilities early enough to be able to make a, a substantial career transition. And But that, as you put it, masterclass in humility was in some ways a gift, right? I mean, may, maybe you were able to embrace a more sort of humble and wise outlook earlier in your career because of that. Maybe, you know, I, th- I certainly think it gave me a, a crash course on how to make changes. And, you know, I've taken my career down to the studs now four times. And, and so I've learned how to change largely out of necessity the first time. But being a French horn player and then, you know, ordinarily I would find my skills declining in my 40s and 50s. And I found my skills declining starting in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, when my career was really going well and, and, and suddenly things started to get much harder. Now, in retrospect, it almost certainly had a physiological basis. We now know that you can have micro tears in the musculature of your lips, for example, and, and we can even fix that more than we were able to in the past. That wasn't available in the, you know, when I was leaving the music business in the late 1990s. Be that as it may, it doesn't really matter. Um, the point is I was not as good as I used to be. And it was humiliating and I didn't like it. Mm. And I railed against it. And I was really unhappy. I didn't tell anybody I was in college in my late twenties because I'd skipped college to be a professional mm. musician. And, and I had pride in the fact that I hadn't gone to college because I didn't need to, or so it seemed to me. And, you know, I went to college by correspondence and finished a month before my 30th birthday. And nobody knew that except my wife, because I was just humiliated by wow. the fact that I was obviously on an exit strategy from this. And, and when I finally left and went back to, you know, I'm going to get my PhD and I'm going to become an economist. And, and it was just, I was doing it out of pure reluctance. I was doing it because there was nothing else to do, and, and, which is ridiculous in retrospect. But that's how pride works. Pride is ridiculous because we're all ridiculous when mm. we're prideful. Sure. And now sure. I look back on it and I meet people that are still in the business. You know, I met somebody recently, a French horn player like me, who is with me in the business and is still, is still doing pretty well. And he's like, why did you leave? And I thought about it and I had to be honest. I said, because I wasn't as good as you and I didn't have the same future as you. And if I had been you, I probably wouldn't have quit. And later I thought, Holy mackerel, man. I couldn't have said that a couple of decades ago. <laughs> right. It, isn't that interesting? Yeah. Let's talk about wanting less, because this is among the, the in, in what I think you refer to as your this kind of uh, retirement plan for happiness, right? right. Wanting less is, is part of the, uh, of the solution. And I, I love your observation that what you have divided by what you want equals your level of satisfaction. Right. One of the things that you find is that there are a certain set of skills that successful and happy people have in common. Now, again, this is not, you know, success is not going to lead you to happiness on the contrary, but you can counteract that. You're not, you don't have to be a martyr. You can't be, you know, a miserable, you know, successful SOB going to the grave, railing against the stars for your bad luck. On the contrary, there are a certain set of skills that you actually can cultivate and guaranteed everybody listening to us can do it and they will be happier than they would have been otherwise. Some, some will be very happy indeed. And one of them is that they have to, they have to skip out of this mindset that to be happier, you need more happiness Mm. and satisfaction equals more. Now, happiness per se actually has three parts to it. There's enjoyment of life, 
which is not the same as pleasure. There's satisfaction, which you get as a thrill for a goal met or a job well done. And there's meaning or purpose in life. You have to have all three things, enjoyment, satisfaction, and purpose. Satisfaction is what success addicts are going for all day long. The next thing, the next thing, the next thing, more, 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 more. You're on the hedonic treadmill, you're running and it's going at a terrifying speed and you're afraid to step off because you'll face plant if you try to step off a treadmill that's going at you know five and a half minute mile pace. Don't try, you just better slow that thing down. And, and the reason that they get into this cycle is because they think that more will finally get them where they want to go, which kind of refers to what we were talking about a minute ago. That's not yeah, right. Yeah. That's actually the wrong formula. Success is not a function of what you have. It's a function of what you have divided by what you want. Now, if you think about that, and if anybody's listening to us, I'll say it again. Satisfaction equals H divided by W, where H is your haves and W is your wants. Now, you know that if you the one way to increase satisfaction very temporarily is to have more. A way to also increase satisfaction uh, very permanently is to want less, is to decrease the denominator. And so what every successful person needs is not a haves management strategy. You already have that. You need a wants management strategy. And that means kind of chipping away your wants. Uh, understanding that is incredible. That's, that's almost a guarantee that you'll get happier. I see the very beginning of a contraction of my wants. <laughs> yeah. been, yeah. They've expanded for quite a few. And I said this to one friend who just sold a you know a, a billion dollar company, and, and, and he looked at me kind of quizzically, <laughs> yeah, like wanting less. What? I mean, because it was just at the moment where he's you know buying buying. Well, the key thing know, is interesting like because this is scorecard time with the want yeah. with the more 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 more. You know, when people think about it carefully, especially sophisticated, intelligent people who've had a lot of success in their life, you, the hardest question you can ask them is, what are you going to do with that billion dollars? They don't have an answer to that. You know, the, yeah. the point of the billion dollars is knowing I did a lot of good, that I created a lot of value, that I mean something. It's a, it's a metric for self-valuation because that's how the world um, understands valuation is, uh, is through money and through power and through the admiration and prestige that people enjoy. These are the, these are the metrics. And, and of course, that's what Mother Nature is driving you to do. But if you ask somebody, okay, what's your plan for the disposition of that money? They can come up with a couple of things, but they're just ridiculous. You know, it's the most amazing thing. They're really good at getting it. They're not very good at spending it. And they're horrible about giving it away. And, that, and you know, spending it brings a little satisfaction. Giving it away gives almost no satisfaction. The only thing that brings satisfaction to people who are really, really wealthy generally is earning it. You know, seeing the success itself, and that's a real trap. Yes, that's right. That's right. Yeah, and it takes a while to recognize that. No, I'll never forget. I, I started my first company in my late twenties, and you know, for years and years, I toiled with you know very little income and just kind of making ends meet, and. I'd reached, I said, once we, you know, close this deal and do X, Y, and Z, then I'm going to buy, this is ridiculous and embarrassing, Arthur, but it was like a flat screen TV. <laughs> but it was the early days of flat screen TVs, you know, and I, it was that and this Apple computer I was dying for, this very powerful computer. And so I'd, I'd, I'd accomplished these things and, and, and they arrived. You know, yeah. these two things that I lusted yeah. after. And I'd, I'd held out as carrots. They were sort of, it was like a, an incentive, you know, for, for a year. And they arrived and I opened the boxes and I felt so depressed. Yeah, <laughs> just It just collapsed. And it was, that was one of those puzzle pieces that like, this does not fit with the way I thought the world worked. 
Yeah, and most people don't get to that point. You know, most people don't feel sorry for you, Rufus. I mean, you, you've been tremendously no. successful in your life and career. And most people are like, oh, I'm just looking forward to Saturday, getting through the week, and I can have a little bit of peace and quiet and a little bit of time with my family. But that's not how really successful people, especially success addicts, are wired. You know, a very close friend of mine, um, he said that he knew he was going to be successful. He would know he was successful when he walked into the Mercedes dealership and bought a car in cash. And you know, he's a big private equity entrepreneur. And, and I thought to myself, you know, who, who the heck can do that? I mean, drug dealers and evidently private equity managers. And, and, you know, he said he was able to do that at 32. He walked into the Mercedes dealership with a check and put it down and said, I want my car. And as he was driving off the lot, he thought to himself, I could have saved for another year and gotten the Ferrari. <laughs> and, and what that was, right. was that his haves yeah. had gone up a little and his wants had exploded right. because that's how yeah. the hedonic treadmill works. And, uh, you know, I've asked, I asked another very wealthy friend of mine, you know, what's the biggest mistake about success and wealth that you make? What's the key thing that you thought was going to happen that didn't mm. happen? Right. Cause I, I'm very interested in, you know, cognitive worst practices, you know, how do you, cause that's how you not make mistakes. And he thought about it, and it was very—it was a very heavy moment. He said, "I guess I thought that if I got really rich, that my wife would love me." Oh and wow! She, and she still didn't. Wow, that's right? that's that that stings. Yeah, totally. Here's a stat I heard recently. Tell me if this resonates with you. The vast majority of Americans, 81%, say they don't read as much as they want to. But get this, the same folks say they only need to do 15 minutes of reading to feel like they accomplished something. So, okay, most Americans don't read as much as they'd like to, but they think they could solve that problem in just 15 minutes. But let's get realistic. How much can you really read in 15 minutes? A few pages of a book, a short magazine article, maybe a kitchen appliance instruction manual? Well, what if I told you you could read a book, a whole book, in 15 minutes or less? In fact, you don't even have to read it. You can listen to it while you're doing the dishes, weeding the garden. If you think that sounds too good to be true, then clearly you haven't downloaded the Next Big Idea app. We have partnered with hundreds of the world's leading authors to create 15-minute text and audio summaries of their books. There's no other place on the planet where you can hear authors share the key insights from their books, a new one every single day, in such a neat and tidy package. All you have to do to access our incredible library of book bites is to go to your app store, search for Next Big Idea, and download our app. And our app isn't limited to book bites. It also has ad-free versions of this show, conversations with our curators, and audio video e-courses with our favorite writers. There's no better way to get smart fast. Download the Next Big Idea app today. Arthur, you, you have a chapter on faith. Yeah. And you said in this chapter that you seriously considered leaving it out. Why was that? You know, um, it's hard for people to talk to each other about faith. And it, this is another thing. It's, it's like politics in a way that people... S define their own identity in terms of their belief or their unbelief. And, and it's quite alienating. You know, when you say, I believe this or I don't believe that, a lot of people will stop reading. And so I have to be really sensitive about that. You know, it's mm -hmm, mm -hmm. over the last 10 years of my life, I've had 
tremendously deepening relationships with, you know, my neuroscientist friends who are atheists and my, mm -hmm. you know, I'm studying with the great Hindu and Buddhist masters in India and, and people in my own faith. I'm a practicing Catholic and it's, it's literally the most important thing in my life. But I take so much solace and value in the love and friendship and brotherhood and relationship that I get with people who aren't in my community. And I felt like I, and furthermore, having a transcendental approach to life, religious or not, is so unreplaceable mm, yeah, in the happiness yeah, equation yeah. that in the end, I like, I got, I, I got to put it in. It's a risk, but I got to put it in. Well, it, it's a very broad-minded and inclusive chapter, I will say, as as I, I would be in the, uh, in the sort of neurochemistry-oriented atheist future friends of yours category. Right. <laughs> and, and, but I think your version of religious faith is appealing if we're talking about happiness in the second half of your life, there's some important data points here, right? That faith is positively correlated with longevity as well as happiness, right? And 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 I think some would say, well, maybe this is community, maybe this is stress reduction. You know, most people probably would choose to believe that they will live forever, <laughs> if, right? Yeah. That's the, um, so, that's called the mortality paradox, where on the one hand, we understand intellectually we're going to die, but we cannot conceive of not existing, which is an intense source of cognitive dissonance. And it's really yeah, only yeah. a transcendental understanding of life that can resolve that and bring you peace. But you see it as more than the, than the community factor, the stress reduction, reducing fear of mortality. For sure. For sure, you know, and because I've you know I've looked at the data on this as a social scientist, and and if I, it turned out that my faith actually was the secret to happiness, I would say it, but it's not. It's also not the secret to unhappiness, as a lot of former Catholics will have you believe. Um, what we find is that people who have a a perspective on life that's broader and bigger than themselves, that's what brings perspective and peace. So, you know, left to our devices, once again, tyrannical mother nature will say, it's like Rufus, think about your job, think about your success, think about your future, think about your mortgage, your commute, your money, your TV, your me, me, me. It's just so tedious. It's like oh. basically being pressed up against a pointillistic painting and your nose is touching it. So all you can see is two dots. And you're going like, this isn't beautiful. It's two dots. Well, back up. It's a Syrah painting. It's incredible. Mm, and what a yeah, transcendental yeah. walk, whether it comes from a serious study of the Stoic philosophers or, mm -hmm. or getting serious about understanding nature and walking in nature or, or analyzing the works of Johann Sebastian Bach or rediscovering the faith of your youth or getting involved in a serious meditation practice. What all these things do is they allow you to zoom out on the experience of life because the truth is there is something much bigger than you. There is something much bigger than me. And, and to be obsessed with this one point is just misery for people. And there's a lot of data that shows this. And so just the zooming out is, it's a tonic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think for me, my just utter fascination with science has been that kind of transcendental walk, and 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 I, I I've tended to see the the progress of humanity in understanding the world around us as one of increasing humility, much as the progress of an individual, as we learn more throughout our lives, tends to be one of increasing humility. So when you think of sort of eight hundred years ago, we believe the Earth was the center of the universe. Then we realized it was not the center. Right. We, you know, the better our telescopes have become, the bigger the universe has become, and the smaller we have become. There's been yeah. this constant sort of shrinking of us. And and so from my vantage, 
religions that posit that there is a God who created the universe who also made us in his image, that does not communicate humility. It can cause people to feel a sense of entitlement, of hubris, that they have this direct connection to the, you know, they've got a red line t- telephone to, to the creator of everything, whereas others do not. How do, yeah, how do no, you read that? Hubris is, uh, is endemic to the human experience, to be sure. And a lot of people in the scientific community, they have so much hubris about that we will be able to find out everything, that science has the answer to everything. And Ian McGilchrist has a really good answer to that. He's a psychiatrist and a a neuroscientist from in Scotland, and he writes these you know fabulous, dense, best-selling books, and and he talks about the fact that that there's kind of an awakened brain in the transcendent, whether it's traditionally religious or not, yeah, that will yeah. understand life in its general equilibrium. Whereas the left side of the brain is is all about the the scientific details in partial equilibrium, and we need both. What we need to do is, of course, not to be not to fall prey to the hubris of scientism and not to fall prey to the idea mm. that we are the center of the universe. Look, the Bible is very clear. You know, you, on, on Ash Wednesday, every Catholic gets ashes and is told, remember, from dust you came and to dust you shall return. I mean, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like the, the deadliest of the deadly sins, according to Dante, is envy which is the characteristic of Satan himself. And so anybody who fall, falls prey to this egotistical hubris because of, of traditional religion is just absolutely not getting the point. But there's an awful lot of it going around. I agree. Well, that, that's a fair point that there's plenty of hubris in the sciences as well. And whatever causes people to feel uh, an inclination to love their enemies, from my vantage, is, is a powerful positive because uh, there, there's some healing to be done out there. So. You know, uh, I, I love, Arthur, your reverse bucket list and, and your process of paring down your wants. And, and my favorite detail that I've heard you say that a couple of years back, you wrote down among things that you were trying to pair and reduce in your life was uh, things you wanted to give away were your uh, political opinions, some of them. that you, I think you said you went through an exercise a couple of years back of writing down all your political opinions and you selected half of them to give away, to detach yourself from. Right. Is that, do you see this as an extension of kind of the humility exercise? And- yeah. Yeah, because, you know, the biggest tyranny that we have is identifying with things. Um, you yeah. know, the, Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese Buddhist monk, he wrote that our greatest attachments are the attachments that we have to our own opinions. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's so true. I mean, you think about it today. I mean, it, go on Twitter if you dare. And it's just a complete sewer because people are, they'll kill each other. It's like getting between people and their political opinions, like getting between a grizzly and her cubs. And I thought about that and I thought, you know, I feel like I know a lot about policy and politics. I mean, I ran AEI for 10 years and I've got pretty strong opinions, and, and it's okay to have opinions. What's not okay is to have those opinions define you. Look, I'm mm-hmm. Arthur Brooks. I'm a husband and I'm a father. I feel like I'm a child, beloved child of God. Um, I believe that I'm put on this earth to serve other people and to lift them up and bring them together. I am not on this earth to tell you, Rufus, that you're an idiot because you disagree with me politically. That <laughs> I wrote a whole book yeah. called Love Your Enemies and I got to live it yeah. out. And the way to do that is by not by not having opinions, but by detaching myself to the importance of those opinions. I mean, quite frankly, I might be wrong. 
in a lot of yeah. my opinions. But more importantly, even if I'm right, you know, the, the attachment that I have is going to make them into a weapon that will be utterly unpersuasive, mm -hmm. but it'll also, you know, yeah. bring me down because these attachments of my sense of self is a bundle of opinions. That's just the most pathetic thing I've ever heard. And so I made a conscious decision to detach myself from, I said half my political opinions, but it was really all of them. It was the importance of those particular political opinions. I still think things But mm -hmm. if you disagree with me, I want you to come sit next to me and talk to me because I'm mm -hmm. your brother yeah. and yeah. I want you to tell me more. And it's really, it's rocked my world, man. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. I have more friends. I have more fun. I'm, I'm more at ease. It's, it's been a game changer. Now I, I have some liberal friends who probably would say, well, that was a prudent decision because he was a conservative. <laughs> <laughs> They would like all conservatives but, to do that. <laughs> but but you would say this was not actually a recognition that your opinions were wrong per se. This was a a philosophical shift. And a, it and was, a, and I'm sure. I mean, as just as somebody who's educated in statistics, it's impossible that all my opinions are right. I just don't know which yeah. one of them are wrong. Unless yeah. I have enough humility to be listening to people who disagree with me, I'm never going to know. And I'd like to know first. If I'm wrong, I mean, that's kind of an interesting thing for me because being right is a lot more important than, you know, winning arguments as far as I'm concerned. Really being accurate is less, having the truth is, is more important than winning arguments as far as I'm concerned. And I think everybody can do that. You know, I think that's really, really important. And, and the things that we care about, you know, the love, the relationships, the things yeah. that, you know, the faith and the family and the friendship and the service that we can have to other people, that's the stuff that should be on your bucket list. And that's what getting rid of the money, power, pleasure, fame, prestige, right ego, getting rid of that stuff frees up all these slots on the bucket list for the good stuff. Well, I, I saw a headline recently that suggested that pickleball might be what we need to heal the country. <laughs> um, I, ha I haven't read I haven't read the piece yet. I intend to. It, it sounded hopeful, but it, are, you, it are you a pickleball me. player? <laughs> you know, I have played pickleball. I I, I play other racket sports, but I, if it will help heal the country, I will definitely play a lot more pickleball. Heck yeah! I'm telling you, let's have, let's actually have a congressional pickleball league, right? But but fundamentally, we need people to sit next to each other and have conversations across the aisle, and I think that's that's uh, what I'm guessing is the thrust and 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 to to love our enemies, as you say. Absolutely. Absolutely. And what a pleasure it is, by the way. I mean, what a, what a relief it actually is to not treat people who disagree with you with contempt, but rather with curiosity and with, uh, you know, it's people love it when they actually do it. But we also have a, you know, kind of an outraged industrial complex in this country that makes money and gets power when we hate. And it's, it's profiting mm, yeah, from our hatred, yeah, profiting absolutely. from our bitterness and our inability. And, you know, the way that we can stand up to the outraged industrial complex in politics and media, right and left, is for us to say, I refuse, man. I'm, I'm out. I tap out. I'm going to be a person who loves, not a person who hates. Absolutely. And what a, and what a beautiful twist that generosity ends up making humans happier. Yeah. You know, it just is, it's sort of, it's one of these things It didn't have to be that way, but it just happens to be the case, right? Well, remember mother nature doesn't care if you're happy. Mother nature wants you to have more junk in your cave. And, you know, the truth is that having a less cluttered life with more people around you who love you, it might not add to your genetic fitness, but it will give you a much, much higher quality life. Love equals happiness, full stop. Yeah, man. That's it. Well, Arthur C. Brooks, thank you for taking time out of out of 
your uh, non-ambitious uh, book tour <laughs> to be with us today. We really, really enjoyed the conversation. I did too. Appreciate the work that you're doing, bringing big ideas to the country. It's a, it's a service that benefits me and a lot of other people. So thank you. And that's our show. You can purchase Arthur's latest book, From Strength to Strength, wherever books are sold, including in the Next Big Idea app. There you'll also find Arthur's Book Bite, where he shares five key insights from the book in just nine minutes and 13 seconds. Great for sharing with busy friends. If you enjoyed today's episode, I think you might also like our conversations with Oliver Berkman, Catherine Price, Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, Devin Price, and Anna Sale. To hear those episodes, to hear any of our episodes, follow The Next Big Idea on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. While you're at it, we would be tickled, honored, delighted if you'd leave us a rating and a review. We want to hear what you think. Today's episode was produced by Caleb Bissinger. Our executive producer is Michael Kavnat, sound designed by Mike Toda. Working with the team at LinkedIn gives us enjoyment, meaning, and satisfaction. I'm Rufus Griscom. See you next week.